Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, a, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupt and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciousnesses are corrupt. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, uh, we want to thank you so much that Jesus is the king, that he is indeed the ruler over everything, and that uh, he rules uh, your church. He rules your church. Uh, your church is ruled by your word and your spirit, uh, which exalt Jesus. And uh, so, Father, we want to pray as we come to your word, uh, both here as we look at Titus 1 and uh, in the hall as the kids look at uh, Ephesians 6. Uh, we just do pray that um, we would be led by your word and our lives would be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About 24 years ago, I made a decision which turned out to be one of the most important decisions of my life. And it was the decision to determine which...
denomination I would seek to be ordained in as a minister. Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, uh, look at a variety of different denominations and to uh, give prayerful consideration to my future as a minister. And for myself, in comparing several denominations, there were two key factors that I wanted to take into consideration. And the first one was doctrine. What does the denomination believe? Uh, how do they understand the Bible? And how is that fleshed out in a whole range of uh, beliefs that uh, the, the denomination holds? The second issue was about leadership. How are congregations led? How's the denomination led? What would be my role as a minister? And uh, it, was a, it was a tough time, actually. It was a uh, time of intense uh, consideration, reading, talking with people, praying, mulling it over. And during that time, I found myself drawn to Presbyterianism. I wasn't a Presbyterian but I was drawn to Presbyterianism. On the issue of doctrine, it was the high view of scripture. It was the centrality of the gospel. And the way that those things are fleshed out in the church's doctrinal statement, which is the Westminster Confession of Faith. But I was also persuaded on the issue of how churches are led. Now, the word Presbyterian, it's a it's a weird word, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, it's hard enough to spell it, let alone understand what it actually means. And, you know, people say to me, well, what do you do for a living, Scott? And I say, oh, I'm a Presbyterian minister. And they go, what? How do you spell that? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a word that uh, comes from a Greek word. The Greek word is the word presbyter, and uh, it means elder. And I guess that uh, the way that Presbyterian churches are led is actually enshrined in the very name of the denomination. Because Presbyterian churches are not led by the whole congregation. When decisions are made uh, about the oversight of the church, you don't, we don't call a congregational meeting and everyone gets a vote on that, irrespective of where they stand with Christ and how spiritually mature they are. But nor are Presbyterian churches led solely by a minister, by one person. Instead, they are led by a group, by a body of leaders who are called elders. Now, to me at the time, 24 years ago, that sounded wise because it's, it's, not, it's not good for spiritual decisions to be made by democratically by the whole of the congregation, irrespective of where people stand with Christ and how mature they are as Christians. But nor is it good for too much authority and too much responsibility to uh, be vested in just one person, uh, in the minister. Instead, it seemed wise to me then, it still does seem wise for authority to be spread and, to be and for responsibility to be shouldered by a group of leaders. Very important. Now in many churches, irrespective of what they officially might say, it does tend to work out that way, uh, but not always. 
there are such churches which are congregational, where the whole congregation has to make, meet every month and make decisions. Uh, there are uh, churches where one person tends to become the authority figure in the church and uh, uh, all decision making is, rests on one person's shoulders. But in the Presbyterian denomination and indeed others, particularly in the Reformed um, tradition, uh, the idea of eldership is made very clear. It's actually enshrined in the constitution of the denomination. And to me that seemed wise. <clears throat> but it also, 24 years ago, seemed to me to fit the examples of church leadership structure which we see in the New Testament. Now there are a number of key passages in scripture which speak about church leadership in terms of a body of elders. And today I want to digress from our series on Ephesians just before we actually wrap up Ephesians uh, in order to consider one of those key passages. Because as you know, as we've said earlier on in the service, our current elders would like to consider appointing some new elders uh, so that under God and under his word that our church may be well led into the future, into the long-term future. So let us consider what God says about eldership as we turn to Titus chapter 1. If you'd care to have that open in your Bibles. As you're turning that, um, I think just by way of background, it uh, might be helpful to speak a little bit about the context of this letter that Paul has written to a young man named Titus. Titus was a Gentile Christian. He was a, a, a young man who had accompanied the Apostle Paul on a ministry trip to Crete. Now, has anyone here ever been to Crete before? Okay, a few people have. All right, so I've got to be careful what I say about Crete. <laughs> I understand you can correct me on this, that it's that uh, kind of small mountainous, rocky mountainous uh, island in the middle of the Mediterranean, somewhere between Italy and the Middle East. Would that be a fair description of it? Okay. It's a bit, bit of a barren sort of place. It's very rocky, very hilly and so on. Okay, so there you go. Got that one right. Um, now, I suppose that today, these days, if, if someone was to call you a Cretan, it's not exactly a compliment, is it? Um, have a look at um, chapter 1, verse 12. In chapter 1, verse 12, uh, Paul has something to say about Cretans. He says this, about Cretans, he says, one of their, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And this testimony, says Paul, is true. There you go. That's the word of God. And, and this, I guess, is where the insult comes from, uh, if anyone calls you a Cretan. But, you know, in this uh, rocky mountain and in in this island in the middle of the Mediterranean, uh, full of Cretans, um, there, was, there were Christians. There were Christian churches which had been established through the work of the gospel. It may have been because through other Christians who'd spread out and had lived there, it might have been also be through the actual visit that Paul and Titus made to Crete that the, uh, the gospel was established and people were converted and churches grew and developed uh, in this island. 
And in verse 5, uh, what we do know is that Paul had left Titus in Crete because those churches, those young fledgling churches, were under threat. Let's take a look at that. Verse 10. In verse 10, Paul says, For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. That's the age-old problem, isn't it, <coughs> of uh, false teachers worming their way into a congregation of God's people and uh, establishing themselves and teaching stuff which is contrary to the gospel. And so for Paul, this raised the question of formal church leadership because uh, when you don't have formal church leadership, what have you got? You've got a vacuum. You've got a void, a void which uh, can be filled by self-appointed leadership. Now, sometimes that works out okay. They might be the right people who emerge as leaders, but it's risky because the wrong kind of person could fill that void. The person who's got a, a theological agenda which is different to the gospel or the person who is uh, insecure and needs to have leadership to affirm who they are or the person who is uh, ambitious for themselves. Uh, they may not even be converted or uh, if they are converted they may be people who are just not very godly. And so Paul left Titus on the island of Crete in order to do a, an important job. And have a look at verse 5, because in verse 5 he says to him, he says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might, that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, notice here that Paul doesn't say to Titus, the reason that I left you in Crete was so that you could convene the congregations and that you could hold an election and uh, you could vote and elect who would be the elders. Uh, in the Bible, elders are appointed. They're not elected. They're appointed. And I think that makes sense, doesn't it? Because it avoids the, apart from the potential politicking, the electioneering, uh, a a congregational election, if it were held thoroughly, would have to involve much public disclosure and evaluation of the lives of anyone who would be proposed as a candidate. That'd be unhelpful, wouldn't it? Who'd want to be put forward as a candidate? And that's why our process involves both uh, consultation with the congregation so that you are able to give confidential input uh, and then after a prayerful consideration and even talking with people, a decision is made which still gives the congregation uh, opportunity to confidentially raise any concerns uh, before appointments are finalised. But it's done confidentially and in the closed court context of the eldership we're able to do a proper, thorough, prayerful consideration. So what kind of people should uh, we as a congregation and as elders, what kind of people should we be looking for? 
Uh, in another New Testament book, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're told that the role of an elder is to direct the affairs of the church. Uh, what are the affairs of the church? What's our goal as a church? I suppose if we were a business, our goal would be to make profit. And we might want to appoint directors who are really good at making profit for the shareholders. But what is our business? Our business is it's godliness, isn't it? That's our business. Um, have a look at how Paul describes him, his own role in uh, verse 1 where he says, he introduces himself again to Titus and he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. What's Paul on about? The faith of God's elect, the knowledge of the truth, and the end goal being godliness. Our business is to be a church of God's people who humbly, gratefully worship Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. And so for an elder to lead must first of all mean that he is leading people in godliness. <laughs> That's what he's supposed to do. That's the end goal. Now, there are two ways that an elder leads. First of all, he leads by example, and we see that in verse 6. Uh, Paul says, An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. These are, not to, these are the people you're not to put on to the eldership. Now, let's consider some of those qualities. Because in, in verse 7, Paul says that he must not be overbearing or quick-tempered. Now, uh, many of us will know of what it's like to, to work with people who are overbearing and quick-tempered. Uh, you know the, the kind of people who simply must get their way. They must have the last word, and if they don't get their way, then everything's going to break loose. And the way that works in terms of relational dynamics is that over time, everyone else around them simply gives in to them because it's not worth the trouble of taking an alternative view. It's the path of least resistance to keep the peace. Sometimes people like that may actually be high achievers, but this is not good leadership because it does not lead others towards the end goal, which is godliness. In fact, I mean, there seems very little point in having a plurality of elders if you've got one person who's just overbearing and quick-tempered and always gets their way, you might as well just make them the leader and everyone else can stay at home. Now this is true of all types of team ministries and indeed it's true in uh, the secular world as well. That the general principle in Christian ministry is that how we treat one another with love, with respect, with, with humility, how we treat one another is far more important that we always get the correct decision made on issues that are not central to the gospel and to godliness. 
because the goal is always godliness. Now, then in verse 7, uh, Paul says that an elder not, ought not to be given to drunkenness, violence, or greed. You can imagine that. Imagine having an eldership where, you know, the elder is the, the town drunk. <laughs> or, uh, you know, they, they have punch-ups, you know, a violent person. Uh, I, I sometimes found it interesting when I've had <coughs> missionaries uh, report back on the, uh, what church life can be like in areas where the gospel is, is just being established. And I remember <coughs> a missionary <coughs> talking about the theological college uh, in the Pacific Island where he was working, and he, he said that the, the bursar of the college uh, tends to have a stock of kawava. Is that what it's called? A kawava out in a shed <coughs> behind the theological college and uh, someone uh, accidentally set it alight and the thing blew up. Because <laughs> that's where you... And I thought, my goodness, you, you know, I can imagine someone at Christ College or more college, you know, the Bursa, having their own liquor supply. And, you know, and <clears throat> the missionary said, well, you know, it's, you don't understand, Scott, what, what it's like for us when we're just establishing the church in these places. There's all sorts of issues that um, people are still in people's lives. And uh, some people have said, well, you know, this business here in Titus, <clears throat> no drunkenness, violence and greed, maybe it was just more prevalent in Titus's day because these days we wouldn't dream of having such people as elders. <laughs> you reckon? <clears throat> you reckon? You know, we've, we have to enshrine now in, uh, in our formal documents that uh, an elder must not have a record of molesting children in his past because that has been what's going on. Been, that has gone on, hidden, unseen, you know, in churches as in other parts of, of society. And sometimes it's these unseen, it's these things which have been pushed into private life that uh, need to be evaluated before someone is made an elder. Uh, indeed, one of the temptations that, um, <clears throat> that we can have is to be so impressed by someone's giftedness and their, their zeal that we can overlook things which we may have heard a hint of and not thoroughly investigate those things. Paul says in verse 8, no... Instead, go for the person who is hospitable, uh, the person who invites others around to their home, the person whose life is, a, is an open book, uh, the person who is hospitable because they actually love and care for other people and they're very happy for other people to see the way that they live and the way that their family <laughs> operates and so on. Go for the one who is good, who is upright, who is holy, the one who is self-controlled and disciplined. Because, friends, it's not about charisma. It's about character. Uh, mind you, a little bit of charisma doesn't go astray either. Uh, you know, it's, uh, life on the eldership would be fairly bland and boring if it wasn't enriched by different personalities. But personalities that, although united in doctrine 
and united in ministry, goal and ethos, bring to the table a variety of different experiences and personalities for the, uh, the better uh, meant of the leadership of the church. They contribute in different ways. But the critical issue is always character. Also, if he is married, his relationship with his wife and his children is to be considered. Uh, in verse 6, he must be the husband of but one wife. Not two wives, not three wives, not four wives. You say, well, that, that's not relevant to us. We don't have polygamy these days. But we do have adultery. We do have uh, flirting. We do have pornography. No, he's to be the, the husband of but one. He's to be like any other godly Christian man. He is to be a one-woman kind of man. That's the principle. Now, what about his children? Uh, again, in verse 6, uh, he is to be a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, what one person considers to be wild and disobedient might be what another person considers to be quite tame. <coughs> I think the kids in our household went there through their wild and disobedient stage when they were about two. <laughs> But uh, the principle here is made a little bit clearer in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 where uh, Paul says that the elder must manage his own family well. That is, he must see to it that his children obey him with proper respect. Yeah? Because if he doesn't know how to manage his own family well, then how on earth is he going to know how to manage the family of God? especially when it comes to boundaries, theological boundaries and godliness boundaries. I think it's worth saying at this point that you know how we've been looking at Ephesians over the last little while and when we got to Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6 we saw that the Bible teaches that, that in a family that the father slash, the husband slash father uh, has the responsibility to lead his family in godliness, well, the church is also a family. And uh, that's why in passages, uh, I think it's inherent in this passage, but in passages such as 1 Timothy chapter 2, it is the men of the church family who are to step up to the mark, who are to uh, take the, on their shoulders the responsibility for the spiritual leadership of the church. You might have noticed our elders are all men in the church. And that's why. It's inherent in this passage. Paul says that he must be the husband of but one wife. So does he manage his own family well? Does he invest time with his children, teaching them about the Lord, reading the scriptures to them, encouraging them in godliness? Because if, if he is doing that, then there's going to be some fruit from that. we actually be able to see it. We ought to be looking for elders who, if they are married, enjoy a healthy family and a family life, a healthy marriage and family life. So an elder should lead by being a godly model. He also leads through teaching. 
We see that in verse 9. In verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. An elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message. What is the trustworthy message? Well, let's uh, check out what Paul says a couple of pages back in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He actually talks about a trustworthy message in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 on page 839. Everyone got that? He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. What's the trustworthy message? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What should be the attitude of an elder towards that? Hold firmly to that message and never let it go. You know, we were once um, uh, babysitting a dog in our house. It was a little, uh, what do they call it, a Jack Russell. You know, those tiny little things, they yap a lot. And he had hold of this rope one day and I was having a tug of war with him. And I lifted the rope up as high as I could and this dog was hanging on the rope by his teeth. The weight of his whole body hanging on by his teeth. You know why? He was committed to the rope. That is how an elder should be towards the gospel. I think that's where the word dogged comes from, I'm guessing. A dogged commitment to the gospel. And why must he be so doggedly committed to the gospel? For two reasons. Here in the passage, first of all, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. Now, not everyone can stand up and preach on Sunday. Not everyone should stand up and preach on Sunday. We only need one preacher every Sunday. It's good for elders to actually preach, but not everyone needs to do that But because teaching can happen in different ways. It is through preaching. It is through small group leadership, but it is through encouraging. Sometimes, often, mostly through private instruction, encouraging people in sound doctrine because... Ultimately, that is where an elder's authority lies. An elder's authority is not inherent in himself, it is inherent in the word of God, which he must be able to share. And we know how that works out in our experience, don't we? Because when we need spiritual guidance, who are the people we talk to? We tend to talk to those who have taught us the word of God. Or we tend to talk to those who we know by their example are going to be the kind of people who are going to actually help us understand the word of God and how it might apply to our circumstances. They lead us through the word of God. Now secondly, and I want to finish on this point, uh, an elder must have spiritual backbone. 
must have spiritual backbone so that he can refute those who oppose sound teaching. That's not an easy thing to do, you know. It's not an easy thing to confront someone and to say, actually, what you're teaching and what you're believing is wrong. But it, it had to happen in Crete. Um, Titus was to appoint men who would not go all wobbly at the knees at the thought of confrontation or the thought of conflict or difficulty. He was not to appoint men who were wishy-washy. He was to appoint men who would stand up, who would so trust in God and trust and have a confidence in the word of God that when it came to it, they would stand up to the false teachers. And indeed, uh, we need people who will uh, oppose ungodliness uh, when it's infecting a church. Because in verse 11, such people were drawing people away from the truth of the gospel, away from the very goal for which Jesus came. Now, friends, our church is not led by everybody in the congregation. Our leaders hope that we consult and that we get feedback and we get opinions and so on, but we're not led by everyone in the congregation, uh, nor are we led by just one man. There's one person in our church who is more grateful than that than anybody else. You might be very grateful that we're not led by just one man, but I am probably the most grateful that we're not led by one man because responsibility and authority needs to be spread. It needs to be shared. Uh, indeed, I'm not a Presbyterian by birth. I'm a Presbyterian by conviction because I believe that this is right. This is wise. And it's founded on the word of God. Our church is led by a group of men they're called elders, or the session. You now know what the session means. <laughs> uh, we're led by a group of men called elders, and they're elders not because of their physical maturity. You don't have to be elderly. Titus himself was a young man. He was doing the appointing. They're called elders because of spiritual maturity. And from time to time, we too need to have new elders appointed. Elders who will lead our church family into our future in godliness, in sound teaching and in mission so that God may use us to bring honour to himself and to grow his kingdom. So that's what those forms are about today so that you can think and pray, carefully consider who you think uh, ought to be considered for eldership. And please pray for our elders as they go through that process and pray that, that God would guide us, that he would lead us, that, uh, that his men would emerge to lead our church. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that your church is, is led by your word and your spirit because of the risen Christ Jesus. 
Father, we uh, thank you that uh, you have uh, set in place models of church leadership that uh, do work to ensure that uh, responsibility and authority is, is spread, but it's spread amongst people who are qualified to lead. We pray for ourselves. We pray that you would raise up uh, godly elders from amongst us, that you would guide and lead our eldership as they deliberate on this, and that the outcome would be that uh, we would uh, have a firmly established godly eldership that would be able to serve this church and serve the work of your kingdom well into the future. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.